are talking about the Critical Raw Materials Act, something that is very much at the forefront of EU policy at the moment. We'll be asking the question, what are the opportunities for European industry and technology providers? Now, of course, we've heard so much in recent months about digital sovereignty and strategic autonomy, but let us not forget there is no digital without those critical raw materials. So we're going to talk about that. We'll be looking at strengthening global supply chains. We know that there has been disruption in recent years, expanding free trade agreements something that is increasingly important during these current economic times and also a way to combat unfair trade practices. All things that have exercised the minds of our speakers today because we have joining us, I am very pleased to say, from the Unit for Energy Intensive Critical Raw Materials in DG Grow and the European Commission, Deputy Head of Unit, Madalina Ivanitka. Thank you very much for joining us. We also have from the ITRA Committee in the European Parliament, Henrika Han, MEP. Diego Francesco Marin is the Policy Officer for Raw Materials and Resource Justice at the European Environmental Bureau. So thank you very much for joining us as well. Georg Rikeles is the Associate Director at the European Policy Centre, bringing in that policy side. And last but by no means least, representing hands on the ground, we have Ansgar Thule, President and Managing Director of Komatsu Germany, which is a mining company. If you're not familiar with it, we will hear a little bit more about that in due course. But first, let me give over the floor to the Commission first. Madalena, to you. Tell us a bit about the thinking behind the CRMA and, and what's gone into getting us to where we are today. Well, thank you very much, Jennifer. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for organizing this event on a very strategic subject, such as the critical raw materials. Um, of course, the timing couldn't have been better, um, as the Commission just adopted on the 16th of March the Critical Raw Materials Act. Um, the act marks uh, a turning point for Europe um, as uh, we, we work towards a determined, resilient and responsible industrial policy um, that will ensure a stable, competitive and sustainable supply of critical raw material. As you already mentioned, critical raw materials are essential for Europe to succeed uh, in the green and digital transition, but they are also essential elements for the defense and aerospace applications um, needed in, in the in a constantly renewed geopolitical context. Um, yes, you mentioned the regulation, uh, the critical raw material regulation builds uh, or actually on the strengths of the European market and the external partnerships that the EU is, um, is developing. And the main aims are to increase our resilience and to strengthen our open strategic autonomy. That's already mentioned by you. And how we are going to do that? Um, the Act looks at um, ways uh, and proposes measures to strengthen all the stages of the European critical raw material value chain. Um, we propose um, uh, provisions to improve the EU capacity to monitor and mitigate the risk of disruptions to critical raw material supply. We also um, have a very strong pillar looking at uh, how to improve critical raw material circularity and sustainability. And of course, we need to continue working uh, with external parties um, and third countries in order to diversify the EU critical raw material imports in order to reduce the strategic dependencies. Um, of course, I'm glad today throughout our debate to provide more details about the content and provisions of the Act. Um, so I give now the floor back to you. <laughs> Thank you. Well, thank you very much indeed. Let's uh, turn then to our, our parliamentary representative, Henrika. What do you like most and what do you maybe like least about the Critical Raw Materials Act? 
Yes, um, good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm looking forward to our discussion already. And I think um, the EU Critical Raw Materials Act is part of the regulatory pillar of the Green Deal industrial plan, as well as in reaction to the US IRA. So we need a sustainable competitive industry in Europe, including a green raw material strategy. And correspondingly, we Greens, IFA, welcome a lot of important provisions of the CRMA. In particular, we welcome the provisions towards a circularity of all critical raw materials in our economy, for instance, for the increase of the collection and treatment of critical raw materials, which waste and products, or the increase of technological maturity of recycling and promotion of materials efficiency and substitution strategies. So imposing an assessment of the potential recovery of CRM from extractive waste is also a very positive step in the right direction to further recognize the tremendous potential of circularity. And to some extent, provisions aiming at rising the awareness of large companies on their exposure and potential risk of supply are, of course, very much welcome. So, however, the proposal contains as well disappointing and even problematic aspects as well. First of all, there's a lack of consideration for the potential of demand side actions to curb the future demand, whereas all the overarching targets proposed like extraction, processing, recycling would be more easily reached by decreasing the material footprint. And we can be also much more ambitious with regard to the benchmarks as proposed by the Commission. Therefore, in our green amendments I submitted just today, we have proposed a recycling benchmark designed towards an objective of circular economy according to the amount of strategic raw materials available to be recycled, see present in waste, instead of as a comparison to the annual consumption to set a benchmark of recycling capacity in the union corresponding to 70% of the amount of strategic raw materials present in waste. So a benchmark for self-sufficiency, in my view, instead of extraction, uh, is important. And here we are not changing the figure of 10%, uh, to be precise. But we also include in our amendments a slightly reinforced objective of diversification of supply chain chains by intending to diversify EU imports as long as it's more concentrated than the global average. And finally, we also reinforce provisions and language around local and affected communities, in particular indigenous communities, and about involvement of communities and so on. So lots of important points I mentioned already. So it's a good step in the right direction, but we can make it better. Thank you, Thank very, you much. very much. Uh, we, uh, will we will come on to some, on of, some those of those figures, figures indeed, indeed uh, and, uh, and the benchmarks that have been set, set out. out. Diego, Diego uh, let, uh, me, let turn me turn to you. To you. Um, um, I, guess I guess you have you some have of the some similar, similar concerns, concerns uh, coming, coming from the, from the Environmental, Environmental Bureau, Bureau but, uh, but uh, give us your overall impressions first of the CRMA as proposed. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much for having me here as well today. Um, indeed, uh, as uh, uh, MEP Enrique Hahn was mentioning, there is uh, some positives as well as some negatives. Maybe on the positive side, I'll uh, speak a little bit about, for example, what has not been yet mentioned is uh, the importance of mining waste, uh, the mining waste potential. So basically, this is a point that we have been pushing for uh, for a little bit. And actually, uh, with some of our uh, colleagues at Katapa, for example, an NGO that was involved in this uh, Horizon project, um, the importance of mining waste really came about, uh, I think, in the last uh, eight years, for example. And uh, through that, there's been a lot of interesting developments on that on that area. For example, LKB at the moment uh, has some uh, a project coming up. Maybe we can talk a, a little bit about that later. 
Um, but there's a lot of potential on that. And of course, data information for that will be necessary. Um, so maybe to get a little bit more on the more specific sides, uh, it's just really important to say that the EU is no longer material blind. Uh, I think that there is a high recognition now of what it is needed to do uh, to get to the energy transition. Uh, however, uh, of course, this is this really depends on uh, how these targets are going to be set up. They're going to be discussed, uh, whether these targets are unambitious in some areas, for example, in the recycling area. Um, 15% is, of course, uh, movement forward. Um, but the lack of language on, for example, recycling content uh, is, is, is not there. Uh, and of course, it's good to have recycling targets. But of course, if you don't have recycling content targets, um, you really, really uptick in the circular economy has will, will have its limits. Uh, some of the concerns also rely uh, on the, um, and, I, and I'm very glad that Enrique Han mentioned this, is uh, of course on the uh, impact that this will have on uh, local communities, particularly on indigenous communities uh, around the world. It is generally understood that uh, half of it, all of these projects will impact actually uh, uh, these uh, communities, uh, indigenous communities around the world. So uh, the lack of language on that is, is clearly uh, a concern for us. Additionally, for that, for that related to it is the um, over-reliance on certification schemes, of course, and audits. Um, so this is, of course, a, a red flag. I know in the, ITRA, in the ITRA draft, for example, this language is even reinforced even more. Um, but anyway, I'm sure we will be able to talk more about it. Um, overall, just to say that uh, the EU has an opportunity, really, with the Critical Raw Materials Act, uh, to enhance not only sustainability of these raw materials, but also uh, increase self-reliance. And of course, have uh, the international angle, which is extremely important, on creating a different development model with the global south uh, that is yet to be seen. Uh, but again, on the negative sides, um, you know, still questions remain. And I'm afraid that if we don't get this right, uh, the impacts and the ramifications of the Critical Raw Materials Act could actually become worse even than the problems that we're trying to solve. Well, let's try and focus on some of those problem-solving angles over the next hour or so. Uh, and I'm sure Ansgar will come back to, to follow up on some of your points regarding mining. But Georg, let me come to you. Um, your first impressions of the Act, give us an overall view before we get into the detail. Thank you, Jennifer, and, and a pleasure to be here for this debate. Well, what, what I like the most uh, about this, I mean, I'm picking up a, a word used by uh, Madalina. Uh, she spoke about the turning point for Europe. I think what's really important here is that we are at a turning point um, in the way Europe is looking at uh, the international environment. Uh, we're understanding that we're facing brutal geopolitics and also that the international economic environment uh, is changing and about to change quite drastically. So, so in a sense, uh, Europe is no longer believing blindly in free trade, open markets, market neutral policies. Of course, uh, that would be the first best, but it's not the reality we are facing and the conditions we have to operate in. So, so uh, Europe is upping its game, uh, looking into dependencies, uh, into the strategic competition, looking for what open strategic autonomy means uh, area by area and of course this is an example and when it comes to critical raw materials i think it's very clear china is strategically prepared for for the mineral economy uh, that is coming uh, china is strategically prepared for for the green transition uh, for the net zero age uh, europe is not so so overall what i find very positive is that we now have a commission act that says okay we need to think about mining in europe 
rather than having this logic simply of not in back uh, not in in my backyard and and these problems will be uh, or these resources will come from 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 elsewhere uh, in the past politicians have avoided trade-offs now there's a sense of uh, well there's a willingness to to face them uh, what I like the least about it or, or sort of the point we need to to work on is that uh, whether we're talking about the net zero industry act or the green deal industrial plan or or now the Critical Raw Materials Act. Essentially, what we're talking about, what's coming out of the Commission is all rather declaratory, when you have these percentage figures, for instance. So I think we must be very honest that as Europe, we are pr pretty much where China was 15, 20 years ago. Uh, China's plans for clean tech, be it hydrogen, batteries, wind, solar, or its strategies for raw materials, they developed that in their 11th or uh, 12th five-year plans. That's 15, 20 years ago. So we have to be very conscious now of the road uh, we have to travel to, to, to be credible in, in, in all of this. Uh, think really hard about how we reach all these objectives. And I think there, there's a lot of things to, to work on uh, that also goes obviously beyond what's in, in the Raw Material Act. Thank you. As you say, a lot of ground to cover. Um, Ansgar, let me turn to you. Uh, tell us a little bit as well about Komatsu um, and how you're interacting with the uh, Critical Raw Materials Act. Yeah, first of all, thanks, thanks for the invitation, for having me here. Uh, generally speaking, uh, I think Komatsu Germany, but also Komatsu, of course, worldwide uh, welcomes very much this initiative from the EU. The EU has recognized for quite some time the importance of this topic and have put forward several initiatives. However, this proposal now marks, especially when it comes to PACE, a significant change uh, when it, in this regard. Um, I think not only Commerce, but also the entire European machinery and equipment industry is, is really keen to play an essential role here in this initiative and will be one of the key enablers in the environmentally friendly extraction and recycling of raw material in the EU and worldwide. Um, in a case of a sustainable implementation of the CRMR, the EU can certainly rely on the know-how and the advanced technology of the European machi machinery industry. Also, and this is also important when it comes to a fair partnership in projects in third countries, uh, probably abroad the EU boundaries. Central positive aspect of the of the CRMR is is uh, certainly securing the supply of raw material as an original and a corp important corporate responsibility, first of all. The companies must decide by themselves which strategies and methods they want to secure to save the supply of raw materials. However, and this is quite evident, especially in the last years, uh, supply of raw material has very much a geopolitical component, which cannot be addressed by the individual business units alone. And thus public authorities and national governments and the EU have to play a role to shape the framework for access to raw materials. And this act certainly serves as an important step. It's also worthwhile to mention it was uh, already uh, done now two times uh, before uh, by, my, by the success predecessors. Um, that, that mining is now explicitly mentioned as one of the key technologies to achieve the green deals and our targets, um, environmental targets and this. And the act proposed for this, now there's it sets uh, certain targets for the first time, so far as I know, for the supply of strategic and critical raw materials through EU sources. 
And this also entails a fair split between primary and secondary materials and actions to scale it up properly. However, timing appears to be very crucial as the targets are set for 2030, 30s just leaving Europe just with seven years to achieve them. So in other words, in the short term, the contribution of additional mining capacity in Europe is unlikely to happen. And this is largely due to the very long lasting permitted processes. Today, we are talking here about easily a time span of 10 to 15 years and the difficulty to attract private investment. In Portugal and the area, we have just recently seen that public acceptance is very low and thus hindering the mining projects. This is something that also needs to be addressed by the policymakers and needs to be brought back in the public awareness. So thus to achieve the target, the EU, company, the EU companies have to enter into international cooperations on existing projected mines. And to enable this in European foreign trade, uh, foreign investment policy, including FTAs, export credits, financing guarantees, and so on, to facilitate private investment is needed. On these and the means to support this, further clarification is, is most likely needed. That's well, it thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. I mean, I think we've covered a lot there of the uh, kind of preparatory statements, as it were, to, to set out where everyone's position is. Um, let me bring uh, your audience attention to the fact that you can ask questions of our panelists as well. Simply scan the QR code that you see there on your screen, or you can go to slido.com on your browser or on your phone and use the hashtag CRMA. Uh, that's open from now, and we'll try and get to as many questions as we can during our discussion. Let me come back um, to, uh, to you, Diego. Um, tell us a bit more about, uh, you mentioned that project. What, what would you like to say about that, the LKB project? Um, tell us what direction you want to see us going in for this discussion. When you said, pro oh yeah, the yeah. So basically, sorry, I, I, I misheard you. Um, so at the moment right now, the projections are based on market demand by 2030. Uh, we know that 60% of this demand, for example, 50 to 60, is coming from the mobility sector, mainly uh, private vehicle use. So the concern of that is that um, we basically dig up as many, many holes as we can uh, for private vehicle use, right? And then the issue is, of course, that this can come at the competition of other technologies that are actually needed for the energy transition, such as solar and wind, or even uh, um, in other technologies, net, net zero industries, of course. Um, so this is this is the kind of thing that we need to do are we doing enough um in terms of the circular economy and do we know enough about what is potentially able to be extracted right i think this is really key so in this sense in, under this sphere the mining waste becomes a really interesting uh, uh uh opportunity for businesses of course to not only extract this material but also from a uh uh environmental perspective because a lot of this waste is just sitting there it's not doing anything is not providing an, an environmental benefit nor an economic benefit so but the, the the reasoning behind this also it is extremely energy intensive uh i think lkb is one of the leading companies there who says that by 2027 their project uh in in uh in the north of sweden would be able to um take off uh, and basically through two mines they will be able to extract around 30 percent of the rare earth minerals uh by 2030 and meet five times the demand uh, uh, of phosphorus for Sweden. So this is really interesting, but the, the issue that I say is that it's just one company doing this under their own uh, uh, materials. 
But what the EU should do and, and really companies as well work together on how do we create an industrial symbiosis around this concept of extractive waste, right? Of course, at the forefront of all of this should be how do we then communicate this uh, with the uh, local communities in, in, and also how do we gain consent uh, to do this? Because it's not just about an exciting new technology possibility, uh, but it actually does require in many cases, of course, reminding the old tailings, uh, historical tailings even, um, and uh, or, or, or some industries that have gone bankrupt, for example. And these, of course, have been polluting environments and are close to local communities who might not necessarily want to see a new industrial project coming up along who, they, who could, uh, 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 could impact them, right? So this is the thing that gaining community, local community consent never disappears under this, this concept. But what I was saying is that uh, we need to do more than what we're doing at the moment. And I think the projection at the moment is really exciting for the mining industry, of course, um, but the projection is very much mine first, ask questions later. And then the issue then becomes is, do we know enough of the materials that we actually have on hand that could be uh, uh, extracted, but are of course, difficult because companies are not sharing that information governments are not really requiring the companies to share that information and then so we miss the opportunity to not only uh reduce our environmental impacts but also increase circularity uh within the eu um, as well as gaining uh business opportunities under this concept of uh, extracting mining waste well, thank you. Um, this idea of getting uh, industry buy-in, I mean, we're talking there specifically about mining on a specific company in one case. Um, it, it is important. Um, Madalena, I know with all sorts of commission proposals, you go through a long consultative period. Tell us a bit about what you were hearing from stakeholders in the build-up to the CMRA. Yes, so we've been um, uh, discussing uh, with the stakeholders, uh, but um, um, a lot uh, over the last uh, the weeks, but also before that, because the, the act has been prepared over the last few years. Um, so we, we didn't start it only last year when uh, it was uh, announced, but um, the basis for preparing the act, the act has started uh, um, some some time, some years ago. Um, I, I remind of the raw materials initiative, which was adopted in 2000. Eight, and then updated in 2011 when we started um, the first uh, criticality assessment. Um, this is an uh, exercise um, that the Commission is doing an assessment that we've been doing every three years in order to identify the materials that are um, critical for, for the European economy. And in determining what materials are included on this list, we take into consideration the economic importance um, and then the supply risks. So um, the act comes, uh, of course, uh, together with a new criticality list, which was uh, anyways uh, up to be um, presented in 2023. But um, besides that, we also identify in the act um, strategic uh, raw materials. And this, this is a, a subgroup of the critical raw materials. Um, and um, basically, we focus on those materials that are essential for the clean uh, um, technologies needed for the green digital transition for defense and aerospace applications. So um, we, we looked, uh, we look, um, so first of all, what are the materials uh, key for these strategic technologies, but also how this demand, the demand for these materials we will increase in the future and how also the uh, supply will uh, will evolve. So basically, we have this uh, two scope, um, two fold scope for for the act. Um, um, 
um, so I was saying, and then we had, uh, because I'm, I'm coming back yet on how we, and uh, the discussion with the stakeholders, then we had in 2020 an action plan, which uh, put forward certain actions that we, we still continue implementing. So basically throughout this time, um, and then uh, ended up with, uh, with last year when we actually got the mandate from the, from the leaders, from, uh, from, from the heads of states and from our president to move ahead and prepare a critical raw materials act. We've been discussing with the, with the industry, with um, with the civil society, um, with the member states, in order to, uh, to to put together the views uh, and ideas and suggestions, we had an open consultation uh, where we received over 700 uh, opinions. So all this um, came together. In, in the act that we, we put forward. Um, after the act was adopted, we also received a, a lot of input. Um, and um, um, again, which uh, for us, uh, it's quite positive because uh, um, the, the stakeholders are telling us that what we, we put forward is actually, it was very much needed. Um, and it's a, it's a very good um, um, step forward. Um, of course, there are different opinions and um, um, uh, stakeholders can have their own uh, views about what is good and what needs to be um, still improved. But that's why we have now discussions uh, with the European Parliament, with the Council, um, that, uh, I mean, the, the co-legislator that uh, will finally decide uh, on, on the Act. So, um, to conclude, <laughs> the, the, the the act was received very well by the community, um, and we are happy uh, to see that. But as I said, um, we, uh, we we built uh, the, this, uh, and this final result has been uh, actually the work uh, um, done over the, the, the last uh, few years. Well, let's talk to, to one of the co-legislators. Uh, Henrika, um, I was going to ask you about what you see is going to be the direction of travel of the act uh, through the parliament, and obviously, we're a little bit getting ahead of ourselves. We won't talk about uh, trialogue negotiations just yet. But I also will bring in a question already from uh, Anders Hoover, who said that uh, Henrika had mentioned the need for more attention on demand side measures, but heard about recycling being mentioned, the circular economy being mentioned. He's asking what other active proposals on the demand side might be worth highlighting? Well, of course, we know that we have in the future growing demand of raw materials uh, because we want to implement the Green Deal means like on green technology, but also in the defense and space sector, which is something that is very critical and sensitive at the moment uh, since we have the war in Europe, of course. And uh, we in, um, as parliamentarians also have the task that this is discussed openly, more openly uh, and not as a taboo, right? Because this is something we really uh, are, uh, have to, to answer to. But I think this is something what we what we currently do, working on the Critical Raw Materials Act and really implement um, all these measures that we need. First of all, we need a push of industrial policy, European industrial policy. We have to make um, uh, sure that uh, the industry is competitive and the small and medium enterprises as well, of course, the start startups too. And what they need is raw materials at a reasonable price and uh, with uh, reliable value chains, uh, of course. And this to ensure and at the same time not to be uh, independent, uh, not to be dependent on uh, sources from other countries is a goal that is very important. And at the other hand, of course, we have to ensure that with the highest ecological and social standards and means like uh, what we just discussed before, um, uh, an acceleration of the procedures, uh, of the permitting procedures, for, for uh, of course, is something we, we have to support, but only if it's not um, at costs of ecological 
psychological and social standards. And this is something we really have to work on, be more realistic about the future demand. Of course, we uh, so somehow when uh, we try to regulate that, on the other hand, we really have to work together with the industry and they know their calculations, what they need in the future, much better than governmental actors, of course. So we have some suggestion in the Critical Raw Materials Act, you know, to ensure a uh, better dialogue on that. Um, it was mentioned before um, that aspect of an alliance. I think uh, that's very important in the future that we have an alliance between the industry and the governmental actors as well as the local communities and the trade unions and all the people concerned by that because we also know sustainable mining itself doesn't exist, right? I mean, we can work in that direction and some actors are, do that pretty well, some others don't, but we have to ensure that we do our best here in Europe um, to support a green industry and also a green uh, critical raw material strategy and I hope that we will get to good results on that. Well, thank you. Um, Ansgar, let me uh, come to you and get you to react to uh, some of what you've heard so far, in particular the question around sustainable mining. Yeah, I think first of all, it should be mentioned that uh, taking into account all the different demand calculations that have been published now and available, we, we can assume that there will be definitely an increase in, in demand and all this demand is most likely not to be fulfilled by, uh, by recycling, especially when it comes to, to certain minerals. So we have to talk about mining and we have to talk about what we call sustainable mining as well. And, it's not only Komatsu, but I think the whole industry here is, is prepared to support this. Uh, there are different technologies available. Uh, it's not only about electrification, but it is also about the efficiency in mining, the efficiency in the total operation when you run a mine, and uh, also then uh, the, um, yeah, basically the, the carbon footprint and the, um, the social impact also which is quite important, especially when we are talking about uh, projects in, in non-EU countries. Uh, it should be mentioned that if we enter these markets as a, let's say, as a European-based based company, that um, we already do have uh, certain standards that are, in most cases, higher than, than the local ones. Um, on the other hand, we need to be also very pragmatic in approaching this by, by providing these countries, these mine sites with, with the latest technology, we already provide them with a technical standard that is, that is usually very much um, you know, not only state of the art, but in some areas ahead of the local standards. And this provides different challenges, but also opportunities. The opportunity certainly is for the mine sites to run the operations with very little impact uh, on the environment and on the um, on the people living there. On the other side, it also offers tremendous opportunities for these people uh, when it comes not only to jobs, but also when it comes to education. So all these aspects have to be taken into account when we are talking about sustainable mining. It's, it's not only focusing on the technology, on the refining, which should, by the way, be also be considered to be done locally, but also uh, the environmental impact and the, uh, yeah, let's say, ESG impact or ESG criteria for the, for the local communities here. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I mean, you're talking local communities. Let's zoom out quite a bit. Uh, Georg, and indeed 
some of the other panellists will be asked this as well. We've got a few questions coming in, uh, including from Ian Kerr on the so-called Critical Raw Materials Club, uh, the idea of getting together with, with like-minded countries. And it's a complex geopolitical context we're currently in. What might that look like? What might it might be most usefully doing? Um, we don't have full details in the CRMA. So, Georg, what would your perspective be? I think obviously the international uh, dimension here is is essential. Um, I'm, I'm saying, I mean, the, the, the Critical Raw Materials Act is a, it's a super step forward. We needed it. We need to see the opportunity in it. Uh, Ansgar has spoken about uh, the opportunity also for uh, well, machinery industry in Europe, uh, which is is, is world uh, leading, and and so uh, indeed there's a lot of opportunity. We need uh, to to seek to to de develop. Uh, there's a big element of this, which is about uh, pushing for uh, more mining, uh, more refining uh, in in Europe, and we need to do that. I mean, the example I often take is uh, the example of, of cobalt. Uh, one doesn't speak that much of it. Uh, we use it a lot. It's being mined today by the, uh, the small hands of children in, in Congo. So it's clear that we also have responsibility of trying to do our own in terms of the effort of doing things more sustainability. But this being said, we shouldn't live under the illusion that uh, in any way, and of course the percentage figures, uh, the objectives that are put together in the Act uh, do not suggest that at all, that uh, we will be anywhere close for to, to some form of, of, of sufficiency, self-sufficiency uh, in, in Europe, uh, when one sees the, the, the minerals needs that will accompany uh, the green transition, uh, not least, but also in other strategic areas. So international partnerships, uh, open trade, open supply chains will remain absolutely essential uh, for, for Europe. And there I think we have to be uh, very mindful and attentive to, to one thing, and that is, okay, a critical minerals club, we, we have to pursue it. But in a world that's all about economic security, uh, even partners are allies. Uh, US, they want the access to these critical raw materials as well. Uh, when we say we do a uh, partnership with uh, Chile, we're very proud of the, the raw materials ch chapter in, in a free trade agreement with, with Chile. We also have to be mindful uh, about uh, the fact that a lot of those mines are actually Chinese owned already. So, so it's, this is not at all going to be an easy international game uh, for, for Europe. Uh, I think we, we, we have to uh, play on, on all those different chapters, all those different levers that the Act uh, is proposing. Uh, one is trying to do uh, the, the, the right thing, but we also have to be very mindful that this is, is a very precarious uh, environment. It's going to be a very precarious uh, transition. Madalena, I'd like to get your responses and your thoughts on this critical raw materials members club, as it were. I mean, what are the criteria for members? I know the ball has been started rolling, but there seems to be a lot of fine print that's still missing. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Um, happy that you actually gave me the floor to talk about it. Actually, the club, as it was announced in the communication that accompanies the regulation, is still under consideration, being uh, uh, under consideration internally. So I cannot give you that many details but what we can say is that um, the club uh, aims to bring together uh, consumers uh, consumer and research countries in order to um, to establish a framework for discussion and cooperation but also to foster 
the investments in the producing countries um, and to um, to help in developing a local value chain and bringing a local value added. Um, the Commission will start um, discussing with so with uh, with with countries that would like to partner in establishing uh, this um, this club um and what i would like to underline is that the club uh, will not um, um replace or substitute um, but will, on the contrary will build on the existing multilateral and bilateral uh, initiatives that exist already because the eu remains deeply committed to to continue working in the multilateral um, initiative that uh, exists already um and um, uh, other, other, um, another element that we can um, think of about the club is the set of principles that will uh, be put forward for the partners to uh, adhere to, um, and that would um, uh, relate to to market monitoring, to um, environmental, social, and governance standard, to uh, preparedness in uh, in case of uh, of crisis, um, investment, how to stimulate and foster investment, a better regulatory environment. Um, work together on research and innovation um, and um, uh, expl um, uh, enhanced exploratory uh, exploration um, efforts. Um, but I'd like to, so that's basically the, 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 the general idea. And as I said, the, the, the fine details are still under consideration internally. But I would like to pick up on, on what Gerg mentioned earlier, the strategic partnerships, because that's what uh, we have been already working on for for the last uh, few years we and we have already um four strategic partnerships that have been signed uh, we we signed in 2021 a strategic partnership on uh, raw materials value chain with canada um uh, the same in 2021 we signed uh, a partnership with ukraine and last year we signed a partnership with kazakhstan and namibia so these are partnerships that look at the entire uh, raw materials value chain and that contains a line of action um, that go from um, business uh, opportunities, so fostering business opportunities on uh, for both partners, uh, cooperation and collaboration on research and innovation, um, uh, collaboration on um, environment, social and governance standards. And for the emerging um, uh, economies, we have um, extra lines of actions, for example, support for building infrastructure, and that we do uh, using the Global Gateway uh, framework and facility, um, working together on developing skills and providing um, technical assistance. So there, are, there is a lot of um, um, action uh, and work already ongoing um, in order to, uh, to to cooperate with with partner countries uh, that are delivering results we we are um, um, we are discussing and close to um, to sign partnerships with um, with uh, greenland and uh, and norway um, and so we have exploratory and uh, technical discussions uh, in view of uh, partnership uh, partnership with these countries um, so um, we, we've been we've been working and will continue working intensely on this uh, because as Greg already mentioned it's very important that uh, we work together with third countries um, and we um, we develop partnerships that are beneficial uh, for the EU but also that will um, that will bring win-win benefits so for the uh, countries themselves to develop uh, local uh, value chains well, you mentioned investment. There's a lot of questions coming in on that, but we'll come back to that in just a moment because, Henrika, I'd be interested to get your view as well on this idea of a club. Where might that fit in the future? Well, we've got free trade agreements in place. Does that mean expanding them? How might, in your view, work? How should that work? 
Well, I work at the European level as the Commission as well. So, of course, we have uh, rather in perspective the European and international um, coordination on that because that is very important. It's not rather um, a limiting national member state perspective. It's rather open to cooperation. And if you think, for example, on, at the on the IRA, so my personal wish would have been that before the IRA, uh, we would have agreed on a transatlantic climate alliance, right? Because this would have been other consequences for the rest of the decision affecting uh, European and American industry. And uh, so if we work on that, you know, to have an understanding where we want to go to in the future on political issues as well, like um, uh, protecting the climate and the environment, we can be much more... Um, uh, powerful with our decisions together. I mean, when we were just discussing today the amendments, we were also um, uh, thinking about um, uh, the relevant argument, you know, what about stockpiling, for example, would it make sense um, to cooperate in that regard on strategic uh, projects? So these are kind of issues you could work much better together as we in general do in Europe, but also if we broaden our perspective. And I think uh, we know, of course, international cooperation can contribute to the effective implementation of um, the legislation we have um, uh, on the table at the moment in the European Union with the CRMMA, like when we talk about information sharing and data exchange, so international cooperation allows for the sharing of information and data related to critical raw materials, and this includes, of course, geological surveys, exploration findings, production statistics and supply chain information and collaborative efforts in data exchange can enhance transparency, improve market understanding and support evidence-based decision-making. And by sharing knowledge and expertise, countries can collectively assess their raw material needs, identify potential risks and develop appropriate strategies. And that is useful for all of us. And as a second point, of course, international cooperation is very good for the um, aspects of resource diversification and supply chain resilience, because international partnerships can promote resource diversification by identifying and accessing alternative sources of critical raw materials by collaborating with other countries, regions or organizations where countries can reduce their reliance on a limited number of suppliers and mitigate the risks associated with supply chain disruptions and coordinated efforts can help to establish a more resilient and diversified supply chain ensuring a stable and sustainable supply of raw materials. And of course, we know that it would be an advantage to cooperate on research and development collaboration. International cooperation can facilitate joint research and de development initiatives focused on critical raw materials. Collaborative research efforts can explore innovative technologies, extraction methods, recycling techniques and substitution options. And by pooling resources, expertise and funding, countries can accelerate technological advancements and promote knowledge transfer and drive sustainable solutions for raw material challenges. And uh, as an additional point, it would be, of course, great to work um, together on, on the harmonization of standards and regulations. The international cooperation can support the harmonization of standards and regulations related to critical raw materials, consistent regulations and standards across countries can promote 
responsible sourcing, ethical practices, and environmental sustainability. And by aligning policies, countries can prevent the relocation of environmental damaging practices to regions with weaker regulations. And because we don't have the same situations in all countries, of course, and this harmonization facilitates the development of a level playing field, promoting fair trade and reducing market distortions, the aspect you were just mentioning before. And as a last point, I would like to mention capacity building and knowledge exchange and also multilateral platforms and frameworks that would be a real advantage for all of us to cooperate on critical raw materials together. Well, let me pick out just one of the, the many points you raised there um, on, on standards. Ansgar, I'd be very keen to get your view on what are the benefits uh, from an industry perspective or what are the uh, challenges? I think listening to this, uh, I think it's important to mention again, I think it was Georg who just raised it, um, Europe is quite late in entering this game in a, let's say, consolidated and concentrated way. And uh, other countries are already there. China is, has been mentioned several times, but also our our partners, such as the US, have their own interest in playing their own game, so to say, in, in this respect. So when it comes into standardization, it should be mentioned that, or considered at least, that the countries or the regions, they do have their own interest. And um, so standardization uh, cooperation is, is good, is, is needed also, because none of the companies or the countries can shoulder the the efforts that are, net, uh, that are needed by themselves. Um, but I'm a little bit afraid that if we want to achieve this target of this uh, uh, minimum supplies of the, of the several commodities by 2013, and if we focus now on standardization and getting the right uh, fundament, um, Europe may lose some time. Um, there are other countries that are quicker, uh, more decisive, and um, yeah, how to say, more forced uh, into the markets, and they already made their claims. And so probably we should focus on several activities at the same time. Uh, Europe has to do something to invest, uh, to invest in non-EU operations, to be honest, to uh, make sure that these targets are achievable. We can try and uh, of course it would be helpful and welcomed also from the industry if there are standards uh, technical ethical uh, or whatever regulatory uh, standpoints that that are on the same level because this makes it easier to accommodate them but uh, waiting for them may may take too long and uh, would then significantly uh, increase uh, the lead time until we see any any benefits from, uh, from the various activities and initiatives here. So looking from a, let's say, industry perspective a little bit, I think uh, we should start um, getting our feet on the ground, so to say. Um, because as I said earlier, exporting, let's say, European or Western technology usually puts quite a positive impact in, in these countries. We should not underestimate this, this effect. And uh, this already gives, gives a good starting base. And one other point is also important to mention, when we are talking about mining, we should not only consider about mining. And the question really is, because there are not that many greenfield op uh, operations or projects. Of
Sorry, I think, uh, I think you cut off just there at the very end of your comments, but I, I, we caught uh, most of it. Um, Diego, let me Sorry. turn back to you. Um, no problem, I, I, think, I think everything was clear. It was just the last word or two. Um, Diego, let me come back to you. Um, to re feel free to react. A lot has been said. Um, but also, let me take a general question from our audience um, just to you on your view on the issues of social acceptance regarding industrial extraction and processing projects that will have to be set up in EU territories. What, in your view, should we expect from member states, from, from regional, from EU level, and indeed from companies? Uh, yes, so this question is a very good one, very timely as well. I think a lot of the discussions at the moment, uh, one, they're extremely favorable to the mining industry. Uh, I mean, just the whole language on increasing public acceptance or actually facilitating public acceptance uh, to really raise red flags for anyone who cares about human rights uh, or environmental due diligence. Um, reason being is because, I mean, let's let's take an example of what's happening in the global south. I'm from Peru, so I know the situation there very well. Uh, this term of increasing public acceptance uh, <laughs> has been tried, actually. The mining Yanacocha uh, in the early 2010s, uh, trying to extract uh, copper uh, from um, uh, from Cajamarca uh, uh, in northern Peru. The expansion of that was the Conga mine. And this uh, talk about facilitating public acceptance was very well used. Uh, and what happened is the, the government actually sent the, the police and military as well to squash the dissent, right? The protests that were happening because a lot of, because this project was really uh, uh, threatening the livelihoods of the local communities, particularly the water. So when we talk about facilitating public acceptance, a lot of the, the, the concern around this is like, oh, you know, local communities are against these mining projects. One is a very, very um, condescending type of way of looking at it because a lot of the uh, burden of, of proof in a sense is put on the communities. Like, you know, uh, a lot of the responsibility as well as put on the communities on they should change their mind. This project is good. So they, these are just people that are like uh, not knowledgeable or what have you. So it's extremely condescending and it, it really erases the real and legitimate concerns that these communities have. Just to give you an idea uh, in Barroso, for example, in northern Portugal. Um, I mean, we, we talk about about how the EU has these laws and they're better than the rest of the global south. But let me just give you an example. So in northern Portugal, in Barroso, uh, a lithium mine is uh, by Savannah Resources is trying to take off there. And um, in the second EIA, because there were some issues with the first EIA, the local communities and, and, and NGOs were also pushing uh, for the government to take a second look, uh, I mean, a look at their EIA process. And within the second EIA, the local communities reported that they had 10 days to look into the uh, into the uh, public participation. We're talking about thousands of documents, right? So this is in Europe currently happening. So what will happen with strategic projects coming in the global south um, when there is a lack of oversight, at least from a European level, um, and uh, in, in these countries who are in some areas are, one, heavily indebted, of course, but aside from that, um, a lot of these countries do unfortunately have issues with uh, governance, right? So we, what I'm saying is without proper due diligence um, and relying solely on certifications, uh, this is going to have really serious ramifications on human rights aspects. And maybe one more thing, uh, last thing I will say, when we talk about strategic projects, um, it's good to get the consent from the country. I mean, that's good that the wording on explicit consent for third countries is there. I mean, 
honestly, you had to have it. <laughs> you, you could not think of it. But the issue about that is that, like I mentioned earlier, 54% of these projects around the world, energy transition minerals, are happening in uh, near or, or within uh, indigenous lands and land-connected peoples, right? So then what you have an issue is that if a member, if a country, let's say Indonesia or let's say Brazil, now, now the Lua is there, uh, it might be a little bit different, but uh, let's say Brazil or let's say Peru even, a lot of lithium has, been, has recently been uh, found there. So the concern is then that you have the state agrees to it, but then the local communities, particularly those local uh, uh, indigenous populations, might not necessarily give the consent. So then you have a uh, institutional push to get this project going. And guess who's going to do that? The military. And this is something that is really not being talked about, is how the nexus between military, security, surveillance mechanisms will be used and could be used to local communities on the ground. And, um, and without proper uh, environmental and, and human rights due diligence, um, these issues could, could increase. So, so anyway, this is really something that we need to look into. That's a, a very strong message, Diego, and quite alarming to, to hear in terms of military use. To come back to Europe, where I hope we're not actually talking in those terms, um, let me turn to you, Georg. Um, a question coming from uh, Florian Schuck online is actually somewhat related. It's a, how do you judge the chances of national and local authorities to implement the faster permitting processes mentioned in the CRMA? Uh, does the EU even have the competencies to prescribe this? Um, how do we do this in a way that is uh, taking into account some of the uh, concerns that Diego has raised? I, I, I think that you're pointing the figure, finger at one of the fundamental difficulties here. Uh, and that is, uh, we know uh, that we need...
are talking about the Critical Raw Materials Act, something that is very much at the forefront of EU policy at the moment. We'll be asking the question, what are the opportunities for European industry and technology providers? Now, of course, we've heard so much in recent months about digital sovereignty and strategic autonomy, but let us not forget there is no digital without those critical raw materials. So we're going to talk about that. We'll be looking at strengthening global supply chains. We know that there has been disruption in recent years. Expanding free trade agreements, something that is increasingly important during these current economic times, and also a way to combat unfair trade practices. All things that have exercised the minds of our speakers today, because we have joining us, I am very pleased pleased to say, from the Unit for Energy Intensive Critical Raw Materials in DG Grow and the European Commission, Deputy Head of Unit, Madalina Ivanitka. Thank you very much for joining us. We also have from the ITRA Committee in the European Parliament, Henrika Hahn, MEP. Diego Francesco Marin is the Policy Officer for Raw Materials and Resource Justice at the European Environmental Bureau. So thank you very much for joining us as well. Georg Rikeles is the Associate Director at the European Policy Centre, bringing in that policy side. And last but by no means least, representing hands on the ground, we have Ansgar Thule, President and Managing Director of Komatsu Germany, which is a mining company. If you're not familiar with it, we will hear a little bit more about that in due course. But first, let me give over the floor to the Commission first. Madalena, to you. Tell us a bit about the thinking behind the CRMA and, and what's gone into getting us to where we are today. Well, thank you very much, Jennifer. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for organizing this event on a very strategic subject, such as the critical raw materials. Um, of course, the timing couldn't have been better, um, as the Commission just adopted on the 16th of March the Critical Raw Materials Act. Um, the act marks uh, a turning point for Europe um, as uh, we, we work towards a determined, resilient and responsible industrial policy um, that will ensure a stable, competitive and sustainable supply of critical raw material. As you already mentioned, critical raw materials are essential for Europe to succeed uh, in the green and digital transition, but they are also essential elements for the defense and aerospace applications um, needed in, in the in a constantly renewed geopolitical um, context. Um, yes, you mentioned the regulation. Uh, the critical raw material regulation builds uh, or actually on the strengths of the European market and the external partnerships that the EU is, um, is developing. And the main aims are to increase our resilience and the, to strengthen our open strategic autonomy. That's already mentioned by you. And how we are going to do that? Um, the Act looks at um, ways uh, and proposes measures to strengthen all the stages of the European critical raw material value chain. Um, we propose um, uh, provisions to improve the EU capacity to monitor and mitigate the risk of disruptions to critical raw material supply. We also um, have a very strong pillar looking at uh, how to improve critical raw material circularity and sustainability. And of course, we need to continue working uh, with external parties um, and third countries in order to diversify the EU critical raw material imports in order to reduce the strategic dependencies. Um, of course, I'm glad today throughout our debate to provide more details about the content and provisions of the Act. Um, so I give now the floor back to you. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you very much indeed. Let's uh, turn then to our, our parliamentary representative, Henrika. What do you like most and what do you maybe like least about the Critical Raw Materials Act? 
Yes, um, good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm looking forward to our discussion already. And I think um, the EU Critical Raw Materials Act is part of the regulatory pillar of the Green Deal industrial plan, as well as in reaction to the US IRA. So we need a sustainable competitive industry in Europe, including a green raw material strategy. And correspondingly, we Greens, IFA, welcome a lot of important provisions of the CRMA. In particular, we welcome the provisions towards a circularity of all critical raw materials in our economy, for instance, for the increase of the collection and treatment of critical raw materials, which waste and products, or the increase of technological maturity of recycling and promotion of materials efficiency and substitution strategies. So imposing an assessment of the potential recovery of CRM from extractive waste is also a very positive step in the right direction to further recognize the tremendous potential of circularity. And to some extent, provisions aiming at rising the awareness of large companies on their exposure and potential risk of supply are, of course, very much welcome. So, however, the proposal contains as well disappointing and even problematic aspects as well. First of all, there's a lack of consideration for the potential of demand side actions to curb the future demand, whereas all the overarching targets proposed like extraction, processing, recycling would be more easily reached by decreasing the material footprint. And we can be also much more ambitious with regard to the benchmarks as proposed by the Commission. Therefore, in our green amendments I submitted just today, we have proposed a recycling benchmark designed towards an objective of circular economy according to the amount of strategic raw materials available to be recycled, see present in waste, instead of as a comparison to the annual consumption to set a benchmark of recycling capacity in the union corresponding to 70% of the amount of strategic raw materials present in waste. So a benchmark for self-sufficiency, in my view, instead of extraction, uh, is important. And here we are not changing the figure of 10%, uh, to be precise. But we also include in our amendments a slightly reinforced objective of diversification of supply chain chains by intending to diversify EU imports as long as it's more concentrated than the global average. And finally, we also reinforce provisions and language around local and affected communities, in particular indigenous communities, and about involvement of communities and so on. So lots of important points I mentioned already. So it's a good step in the right direction, but we can make it better. Thank you, Thank very, you very much. much. Uh, we will come we'll on come to some, on of, some those of those figures, figures indeed, indeed uh, and, uh, and the benchmarks that have been set out. Diego, uh, let, uh, me, let turn me turn to you. To you. Um, I, I guess, guess you have you some have of the some similar concerns, concerns uh, coming, coming from, from the, the Environmental Bureau, Bureau. but uh, okay. give us your overall impressions first of the CRMA as proposed. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much for having me here as well today. Um, indeed, uh, as uh, uh, MEP Enrique Hahn was mentioning, there is uh, some positives as well as some negatives. Maybe on the positive side, I'll uh, speak a little bit about, for example, what has not been yet mentioned is uh, the importance of mining waste, uh, the mining waste potential. So basically, this is a point that we have been pushing for uh, for a little bit. And actually, uh, with some of our uh, colleagues at Katapa, for example, an NGO that was involved in this uh, Horizon project, um, the importance of mining waste really came about, uh, I think, in the last uh, eight years, for example. And uh, through that, there's been a lot of interesting developments on that on that area. For example, LKB at the moment uh, has some uh, a project coming up. Maybe we can talk a, a little bit about that later. 
Um, but there's a lot of potential on that. And of course, data information for that will be necessary. Um, so maybe to get a little bit more on the more specific sides, uh, it's just really important to say that the EU is no longer material blind. Uh, I think that there is a high recognition now of what it is needed to do uh, to get to the energy transition. Uh, however, uh, of course, this is this really depends on uh, how these targets are going to be set up. They're going to be discussed, uh, whether these targets are unambitious in some areas, for example, in the recycling area. Um, 15% is, of course, uh, movement forward. Um, but the lack of language on, for example, recycling content uh, is, is, is not there. Uh, and of course, it's good to have recycling targets. But of course, if you don't have recycling content targets, um, you really, really uptick in the circular economy has will, will have its limits. Uh, some of the concerns also rely uh, on the, um, and, I, and I'm very glad that Enrique Han mentioned this, is uh, of course on the uh, impact that this will have on uh, local communities, particularly on indigenous communities uh, around the world. It is generally understood that uh, half of it, all of these projects will impact actually uh, uh, these uh, communities, uh, indigenous communities around the world. So uh, the lack of language on that is, is clearly uh, a concern for us. Additionally, for, the, for that related to it is the um, over-reliance on certification schemes, of course, and audits. Um, so this is, of course, a, a red flag. I know in the, ITRA, in the ITRA draft, for example, this language is even reinforced even more. Um, but anyway, I'm sure that we will be able to talk more about it um, overall. Just to say that uh, the EU has an opportunity, really, with the Critical Raw Materials Act uh, to enhance not only sustainability of these raw materials, but also uh, increase self-reliance and, of course, have uh, the international angle, which is extremely important, on creating a different development model with the Global South uh, that is yet to be seen. Uh, but again, on the negative side, um, you know, still questions remain, and I'm afraid that if we don't get this right, uh, the impacts and the ramifications of the Critical Raw Materials Act could actually become worse even than the problems that we're trying to solve. Well, let's try and focus on some of those problem-solving angles over the next hour or so. Uh, and I'm sure Ansgar will come back to, to follow up on some of your points regarding mining. But Georg, let me come to you. Um, your first impressions of the Act, give us an overall view before we get into the detail. Thank you, Jennifer, and, and a pleasure to be here for this debate. Well, what, what I like the most uh, about this, I mean, I'm picking up a, a word used by uh, Madalina. Uh, she spoke about the turning point for Europe. I think what's really important here is that we are at a turning point um, in the way Europe is looking at uh, the international environment. Uh, we're understanding that we're facing brutal geopolitics and also that the international economic environment uh, is changing and about to change quite drastically. So, so in a sense, uh, Europe is no longer believing blindly in free trade, open markets, market neutral policies. Of course, uh, that would be the first best, but it's not the reality we are facing and the conditions we have to operate in. So, so uh, Europe is upping its game, uh, looking into dependencies, uh, into the strategic competition, looking for what open strategic autonomy means uh, area by area and of course this is an example and when it comes to critical raw materials i think it's very clear china is strategically prepared for for the mineral economy uh, that is coming uh, china is strategically prepared for for the green transition uh, for the net zero age uh, europe is not so so overall what i find very positive is that we now have a commission act that says okay we need to think about mining in europe 
rather than having this logic simply of not in back uh, not in in my backyard and and these problems will be uh, or these resources will come from 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 elsewhere uh, in the past politicians have avoided trade-offs now there's a sense of uh, well there's a willingness to to face them uh, what I like the least about it or, or sort of the point we need to to work on is that uh, whether we're talking about the net zero industry act or the green deal industrial plan or or now the Critical Raw Materials Act. Essentially, what we're talking about, what's coming out of the Commission is all rather declaratory when you have these percentage figures, for instance. So I think we must be very honest that as Europe, we are pr pretty much where China was 15, 20 years ago. Uh, China's plans for clean tech, be it hydrogen, batteries, wind, solar, or its strategies for raw materials, they developed that in their 11th or uh, 12th five-year plans. That's 15, 20 years ago. So we have to be very conscious now of the road uh, we have to travel to, to, to be credible in, in, in all of this. Uh, think really hard about how we reach all these objectives. And I think there, there's a lot of things to, to work on uh, that also goes obviously beyond what's in, in the Raw Material Act. Thank you. As you say, a lot of ground to cover. Um, Ansgar, let me turn to you. Uh, tell us a little bit as well about Komatsu um, and how you're interacting with the uh, Critical Raw Materials Act. Yeah, first of all, thanks, thanks for the invitation, for having me here. Uh, generally speaking, uh, I think Komatsu Germany, but also Komatsu, of course, worldwide uh, welcomes very much this initiative from the EU. The EU has recognized for quite some time the importance of this topic and have put forward several initiatives. However, this proposal now marks, especially when it comes to PACE, a significant change uh, when it, in this regard. Um, I think not only Comats, but also the entire European machinery and equipment industry is, is really keen to play an essential role here in this initiative and will be one of the key enablers in the environmentally friendly extraction and recycling of raw material in the EU and worldwide. Um, in the case of a sustainable implementation of the CRMR, the EU can certainly rely on the know-how and the advanced technology of the European machi machinery industry. Also, and this is also important when it comes to a fair partnership in projects in third countries, uh, probably abroad the EU boundaries. Central positive aspect of the, of the CRMR is, is uh, certainly securing the supply of raw material as an original and a corp important corporate responsibility, first of all. The companies must decide by themselves which strategies and metals they want to secure to save the supply of raw materials. However, and this is quite evident, especially in the last years, uh, supply of raw material has very much a geopolitical component, which cannot be addressed by the individual business units alone. And thus public authorities and national governments and the EU have to play a role to shape the framework for access or raw materials. And this act certainly serves as an important step. It's also worthwhile to mention it was uh, already uh, done now two times uh, before uh, by, my, by the success predecessors. Um, that, that mining is now explicitly mentioned as one of the key technologies to achieve the green deals and our targets, um, environmental targets and this. And the act proposed for this, now there is a set, uh, certain targets for the first time, so far as I know, for the supply of strategic and critical raw materials through EU sources. 
And this also entails a fair split between primary and secondary materials and actions to scale it up properly. However, timing appears to be very crucial as the targets are set for 2030. 30 is just leaving Europe just with seven years to achieve them. So in other words, in the short term, the contribution of additional mining capacity in Europe is unlikely to happen. And this is largely due to the very long lasting permitted processes. Today, we are talking here about easily a time span of 10 to 15 years and the difficulty to attract private investment. In Portugal and the area, we have just recently seen that public acceptance is very low and thus hindering the mining projects. This is something that also needs to be addressed by the policymakers and needs to be brought back in the public awareness. So thus, to achieve the target, the EU, company, the EU companies have to enter into international corporations on existing projected mines. And to enable this, European foreign trade uh, foreign investment policy, including FTAs, export credits, financing guarantees, and so on, to facilitate private investment is needed. On these and the means to support this, further clarification is, is most likely needed. That's well, it. Thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. I mean, I think we've covered a lot there of the uh, kind of preparatory statements, as it were, to, to set out where everyone's position is. Um, let me bring uh, your audience attention to the fact that you can ask questions of our panelists as well. Simply scan the QR code that you see there on your screen, or you can go to slido.com on your browser or on your phone and use the hashtag CRMA. Uh, that's open from now, and we'll try and get to as many questions as we can during our discussion. Let me come back um, to, uh, to you, Diego. Um, tell us a bit more about, uh, you mentioned that project. What, what would you like to say about that, the LKB project? Um, tell us what direction you want to see us going in for this discussion. When you said, pro oh yeah, the yeah. So basically, sorry, I, I, I misheard you. Um, so at the moment right now, the projections are based on market demand by 2030. Uh, we know that 60% of this demand, for example, 50 to 60, is coming from the mobility sector, mainly uh, private vehicle use. So the concern of that is that um, we basically dig up as many, many holes as we can uh, for private vehicle use, right? And then the issue is, of course, that this can come at the competition of other technologies that are actually needed for the energy transition, such as solar and wind, or even uh, um, in, in other technologies, net, net zero industries, of course. Um, so. This is this is the kind of thing that we need to do. Are we doing enough um, in terms of the circular economy? And do we know enough about what is potentially able to be extracted, right? I think this is really key. So in this sense, in, under this sphere, the mining waste becomes a really interesting uh, 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 opportunity for businesses, of course, to not only extract this material, but also from a, a, a environmental perspective, because a lot of this waste is just sitting there. It's not doing anything is not providing an, an environmental benefit nor an economic benefit so but the, the the reasoning behind this also it is extremely energy intensive uh i think lkb is one of the leading companies there who says that by 2027 their project uh in in uh in the north of sweden would be able to um take off uh, and basically through two mines they will be able to extract around 30 percent of the rare earth minerals uh by 2030 and meet five times the demand uh, uh, of phosphorus for Sweden. So this is really interesting, but the, the issue that I say is that it's just one company doing this under their own uh, uh, materials. 
But what the EU should do and, and really companies as well work together on how do we create an industrial symbiosis around this concept of extractive waste, right? Of course, at the forefront of all of this should be how do we then communicate this uh, with the uh, local communities in, and also how do we gain consent uh, to do this? Because it's not just about an exciting new technology possibility, uh, but it actually does require in many cases, of course, reminding the old tailings, uh, historical tailings even, um, and uh, or, or, or some industries that have gone bankrupt, for example. And these, of course, have been polluting environments and are close to local communities who might not necessarily want to see a new industrial project coming up along who, they, who could, uh, 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 could impact them, right? So this is the thing that gaining community, local community consent never disappears under this, this concept. But what I was saying is that uh, we need to do more than what we're doing at the moment. And I think the projection at the moment is really exciting for the mining industry, of course, um, but the projection is very much mine first, ask questions later. And then the issue then becomes is, do we know enough of the materials that we actually have on hand that could be uh, uh, extracted, but are of course difficult because companies are not sharing that information. Governments are not really requiring the companies to share that information. And then so we miss the opportunity to not only uh, reduce our environmental impacts, but also increase circularity uh, within the EU, um, as well as gaining uh, business opportunities under this concept of uh, extracting mining waste. Well, thank you. Um, this idea of getting uh, industry buy-in, I mean, we're talking there specifically about mining on a specific company in one case. Um, it is important. Um, Madalena, I know with all sorts of commission proposals, you go through a long consultative period. Tell us a bit about what you were hearing from stakeholders in the build-up to the CMRA. Yes, so we've been um, uh, discussing uh, with the stakeholders, uh, but um, um, a lot uh, over the last uh, the weeks, but also before that, because the, the act has been prepared over the last few years. Um, so we, we didn't start it only last year when uh, it was uh, announced, but um, the basis for preparing the act, the act has started uh, um, some, some, time, some years ago. Um, I, I remind of the Raw Materials Initiative, which was adopted in 2000, and then updated in 2011 when we started um, the first uh, criticality assessment. Um, this is an uh, exercise um, that the Commission is doing an assessment that we've been doing every three years in order to identify the materials that are um, critical for, for the European economy and in determining what materials are included on this list we take into consideration the economic importance um, and then the supply risks. So um, the act comes, uh, of course, uh, together with a new criticality list, which was uh, anyways uh, up to be um, presented in 2023. But um, besides that, we also identify in the act um, strategic uh, raw materials. And this, this is a, a subgroup of the critical raw materials. Um, and um, basically, we focus on those materials that are essential for the clean um, technologies needed for the green digital transition for defense and aerospace applications. So um, we, we looked, uh, we look, um, so first of all, what are the materials uh, key for these strategic technologies, but also how this demand, the demand for these materials we will increase in the future and how also the uh, supply will uh, will evolve. So basically, we have this uh, two scope, um, two fold scope for for the act. Um, 
um, um, so I was saying, and then we had, uh, because I'm, I'm coming back yet on how we, and uh, the discussion with the stakeholders, then we had in 2020 an action plan, which uh, put forward certain actions that we, we still continue implementing. So basically throughout this time, um, and then uh, ended up with, uh, with last year when we actually got the mandate from the, from the leaders, from, uh, from, from the heads of states and from our president to move ahead and prepare a critical raw materials act. We've been discussing with the, with the industry, with, um, with the civil society, um, with the member states, in order to, uh, to, to put together the views uh, and ideas and suggestions. We had an open consultation uh, where we received over 700 uh, opinions. So all this um, came together. In, in the act that we, we put forward. Um, after the act was adopted, we also received a, a lot of input. Um, and um, um, again, which uh, for us, uh, it's quite positive because uh, um, the, the stakeholders are telling us that what we, we put forward is actually, it was very much needed. Um, and it's a, it's a very good um, um, step forward. Um, of course, there are different opinions and um, um, uh, stakeholders can have their own uh, views about what is good and what needs to be um, still improved. But that's why we have now discussions uh, with the European Parliament, with the Council, um, that, uh, I mean, the, the co-legislator that uh, will finally decide uh, on, on the Act. So, um, to conclude, <laughs> the, 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 the Act was received very well by the community, um, and we are happy uh, to see that. But as I said, um, we, uh, we, we built uh, the, this, uh, and this final result has been uh, actually the work uh, um, done over the, the, the last uh, few years. Well, let's talk to, to one of the co-legislators. Uh, Henrika, um, I was going to ask you about what you see is going to be the direction of travel of the Act uh, through the Parliament, and obviously we're a little bit getting ahead of ourselves. We won't talk about uh, trialogue negotiations just yet. But I also will bring in a question already from uh, Anders Hoover, who said that uh, Henrika had mentioned the need for more attention on demand-side measures, but heard about recycling being mentioned, the circular economy being mentioned. He's asking what other active proposals on the demand side might be worth highlighting? Well, of course, we know that we have in the future growing demand of raw materials uh, because we want to implement the Green Deal means like on green technology, but also in the defense and space sector, which is something that is very critical and sensitive at the moment uh, since we have the war in Europe, of course. And uh, we in, um, as parliamentarians also have the task that this is discussed openly, more openly uh, and not as a taboo, right? Because this is something we really uh, are, uh, have to, to answer to. But I think this is something what we what we currently do, working on the Critical Raw Materials Act and really implement um, all these measures that we need. First of all, we need a push of industrial policy, European industrial policy. We have to make um, uh, sure that uh, the industry is competitive and the small and medium enterprises as well, of course, the start startups too. And what they need is raw materials at a reasonable price and uh, with uh, reliable value chains, uh, of course. And this to ensure and at the same time not to be uh, independent, uh, not to be dependent on uh, sources from other countries is a 
ago, that is very important. And at the other hand, of course, we have to ensure that with the highest ecological and social standards and means like uh, what we just discussed before, um, uh, an acceleration of the procedures, uh, of the permitting procedures for, for uh, of course, is something we, we have to support, but only if it's not um, at costs of ecological and social standards. And this is something we really have to work on, be more realistic about the future demand, of course. We uh, somehow, when uh, we try to regulate that, on the other hand, we really have to work together with the industry and they know their calculations, what they need in the future, much better than governmental actors, of course. So we have some suggestion in the Critical Raw Materials Act, you know, to ensure uh, better dialogue on that. Um, it was mentioned before um, that aspect of an alliance. I think uh, that's very important in the future that we have an alliance between the industry and the governmental actors as well as the local communities and the trade unions and all the people concerned by that because we also know sustainable mining itself doesn't exist, right? I mean, we can work in that direction and some actors are, do that pretty well, some others don't, but we have to ensure that we do our best here in Europe um, to support a green industry and also a green uh, critical raw material strategy and I hope that we will get to good results on that. Well, thank you. Um, Ansgar, let me uh, come to you and get you to react to uh, some of what you've heard so far, in particular the question around sustainable mining. Yeah, I think first of all, it should be mentioned that uh, taking into account all the different demand calculations that have been published now and available, we, we can assume that there will be definitely an increase in, in demand and all this demand is most likely not to be fulfilled by, uh, by recycling, especially when it comes to, to certain minerals. So we have to talk about mining and we have to talk about what we call sustainable mining as well. And, it's not only Komatsu, but I think the whole industry here is, is prepared to support this. Uh, there are different technologies available. Uh, it's not only about electrification, but it is also about the efficiency in mining, the efficiency in the total operation when you run a mine, and uh, also then uh, the, um, yeah, basically the, the carbon footprint and the, um, the social impact also which is quite important, especially when we are talking about uh, projects in, in non-EU countries. Uh, it should be mentioned that if we enter these markets as a, let's say, as a European-based based company, that um, we already do have uh, certain standards that are, in most cases, higher than, than the local ones. Um, on the other hand, we need to be also very pragmatic in approaching this by, by providing these countries, these mine sites with, with the latest technology, we already provide them with a technical standard that is, that is usually very much um, you know, not only state of the art, but in some areas ahead of the local standards. And this provides different challenges, but also opportunities. The opportunity certainly is for the mine sites to run the operations with very little impact uh, on the environment and on the um, on the people living there. On the other side, it also offers tremendous opportunities for these people uh, when it comes not only to jobs, but also when it comes to education. So all these aspects have to be taken into account when we are talking about sustainable mining. It's, it's not only focusing on the technology, on the refining, which should, by the way, be also be considered to be done locally, 
but also uh, the environmental impact and the uh, yeah, let's say ESG impact or an ESG criteria for the for the local communities here. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I mean, you're talking local communities. Let's zoom out quite a bit, uh, Georg, and indeed some of the other panelists will be asked this as well. We've got a few questions coming in, uh, including from Ian Kerr on the so-called Critical Raw Materials Club, uh, the idea of getting together with, with like-minded countries. And it's a complex geopolitical context we're currently in. What might that look like? What might it might be most usefully doing? Um, we don't have full details in the CRMA. So, Georg, what would your perspective be? I think obviously the international uh, dimension here is is essential. Um, I'm, I'm saying, I mean, the, the, the Critical Raw Materials Act is a, it's a super step forward. We needed it. We need to see the opportunity in it. Uh, Ansgar has spoken about uh, the opportunity also for uh, well machinery industry in Europe, uh, which is is, is world uh, leading. And and so uh, indeed, there's a lot of opportunity we need uh, to to seek to to de develop. Uh, there's a big element of this, which is about uh, pushing for uh, more mining, uh, more refining uh, in in Europe, and we need to do that. I mean, the example I often take is uh, the example of, of cobalt. Uh, one doesn't speak that much of it. Uh, we use it a lot. It's being mined today by the, uh, the small hands of children in, in Congo. So it's clear that we also have responsibility of trying to do our own in terms of the effort of doing things more sustainability. But this being said, we shouldn't live under the illusion that uh, in any way, and of course the percentage figures, uh, the objectives that are put together in the act uh, do not suggest that at all, that uh, we will be anywhere close for to, to some form of, of, of sufficiency, self-sufficiency uh, in, in Europe, uh, when one sees the, the, the minerals needs that will accompany uh, the green transition, uh, not least, but also in other strategic areas. So international partnerships, uh, open trade, open supply chains will remain absolutely essential uh, for, for Europe. And there, I think we have to be uh, very mindful and attentive to 